Dirt Goat Permaculture Podcast, where you'll learn the nitty-gritty and the down-and-dirty of the permaculture lifestyle. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome back to the Dirt Goat Permaculture Podcast. This is episode five, entitled Strategies, Methods, and Techniques of Permaculture for Gardening, Homesteading, and Farming. I know that's a mouthful, but I'm trying to encapsulate concepts that apply to concepts at levels of um, scale and intricacy and development. So the the goal of this episode is to introduce and begin the uh, explanation and examination of what most people think about when um, thinking about or talking about permaculture. Most people associate permaculture with some form of food production, sustainable food production, with, you know, clever ways that work with nature by using the patterns found in nature to uh, inform the design of, of how those things are grown. So I, I wanted to make this episode because uh, in the previous episodes I've thrown around a lot of jargon and terms that people that aren't familiar with permaculture might not be, might not understand all the things I'm talking about. And since gardening and farming and homesteading is the primary focus of most people interested in permaculture. I wanted to give a, a good overview of all of the things you can do on your landscape, in your garden, on your farm, on your homestead to to grow your own food in various ways and all the things common to permaculture that people often misconstrue as what permaculture is, like swales and hugel culture and sheet mulching and mandala gardens, for example, some of the most common things that people associate with permaculture as permaculture. And I'm just trying to clarify that those are all examples of strategies, methods, and techniques employed by permaculture, or another way of looking at it is tools in the toolbox of the permaculture, you know, kit of, uh, of possible avenues of, you know, bringing the design to life. So I'm just going to begin with explaining the differences between strategies, methods, and techniques, which I've touched upon in earlier episodes. But again, now in a little more depth, um, strategies are your, your overall plans about how you want to approach or complete something broadly. And the methods are systems within that plan, that overall, I I don't know another analogy for strategy, but, you know, systems within that strategy to accomplish steps in that plan. And then your techniques on another level down are the specific actions to perform within the methods. So techniques are within methods and methods are within strategies. So that's the that's the leveling of these these concepts and terms. So to give an example outside of gardening, farming and homesteading and permaculture in general just to 
you know, show, show an example of, of what these things mean in another context. Um, an example of a strategy in like a basketball game that a coach or a team might employ is uh, the strategy encapsulates, you know, using a motion offense, which, I, you know, I'd have to get into more terms about what these things mean, but for sports fans out there, motion offense is just a way that the players on offense move around in a pattern to, uh, you know, get an advantage on the court to score, basically. Um, it, it involves picks and rolls, which is where, like, the offensive team stands behind a defender so that their teammate can, like, run past them and the defender kind of runs into them so they can get open. Full court press, which is where you play defense on the whole court instead of meeting the team at half court. And fast breaks and three-pointers, which is just a way to, like, keep the pace of the game fast, keep the other team on their toes, like, keep running, try to be unpredictable. And being good at three-pointers, you know, it's worth three points as opposed to two points, so you get more points. So if you're good at three-pointers, you're, you know, you'll probably win because you'll be making more points every shot that you make. So the strategy for a winning basketball team, for example, is motion offense, full-court press, fast breaks, and three-pointers. Um, so that all those things together is a strategy, but each one of those things is a method. So, you know, you, you can't have, you can't have a complete strategy for a basketball team just being motion offense. It's an incomplete strategy because it's only talking about one aspect of the offense. So for a complete strategy, you need that motion offense for defense. You want a full court press, uh, and the transition between offense and defense would be like fast breaks like you get a defensive rebound someone runs down the court you throw them the ball it's a fast break they get an easy two points and otherwise if you can't get a fast break you want people that can shoot three-pointers you know when your motion offense isn't generating closer shots there's people outside the uh the three-point line that can hit those shots so all those things together constitute a strategy that makes a holistic kind of plan to win a basketball game so yeah all those things individually are methods and then within the methods a technique would be a pick and roll which is kind of what i described earlier the your your teammate on on offense stands behind the person defending you and then you run in that direction so your your defender runs into your teammate so then you're open so that's one little thing you can do on offense as a part of a method being your motion offense which is a part of your strategy which is all those methods together so that's just kind of exemplifying the nestedness of these concepts outside of permaculture gardening homesteading and farming so now to give some examples of strategies methods and techniques within gardening i'm, I'm going to start at the smallest scale, being gardening and work my way up to homesteading and farming to just show, you know, the levels of applying these levels of concepts to your food growing systems within permaculture. So in a garden, there are several strategies. And just to try to clarify, it might be a little confusing, but these con these terms I'm going to use aren't necessarily only strategies or only methods or only techniques. Like they have layers of application depending on 
the context and the whole system. You know, if you have a big, complicated system, things that might be techniques uh, in a in a different system are now strategies. See what I mean? So it, the 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 scale and complexity of what you're doing determines what these terms and concepts are in terms of being a strategy, technique, or method. So some examples of garden strategies, ways to make a garden, you know, work and and uh, make sense to your context would be sheet mulching, raised beds, mandala gardens, uh, pots on a balcony, and potted gardens, container gardens, and square foot gardening. Those are all strategies, potential strategies within gardening. And methods that could be applied to these strategies, systems within these larger strategies, would be like wood chips on cardboard paths to you know, delineate where you walk and to keep weeds out of your paths and hopefully out of the the edges and the zones between paths and gardens. Um, uh, also, another method would be co compost on cardboard to make beds. So it's a simple form of sheet mulching. Like the most basic one is to put cardboard down on the grass or the dirt that's already there and put compost on it and that's what you plant into is like the most basic simple sheet mulching method it's to kill grass kill the lawn or to just make a garden on top of uh less than ideal soil so you don't have to dig into soil and like try to coax it into a healthy state you're just you're just building right on top starting from scratch basically to uh to you know bring in the fertility and the soil structure I mean, you can even do it on top of uh, on top of asphalt, like in urban gardens. People will often just sheet mulch right on top of driveways or old foundations or parking lots. And uh, as long as you know you're not planting deeply rooted plants like trees. Uh, I mean, I mean, if you deep sheet mulch deep enough and just add mulch all the time, you can plant trees. Like you know, trees especially that don't need a deep taproot, ones that have more lateral roots, you can plant on sheet mulch that's thick enough on asphalt so um so yeah that, that's a couple methods some more some more methods uh that apply to garden strategies is one that i use a lot uh, I, I like to invert sod or till or plow one time and then use the shovel and rake and mattock and stuff to shape the loose soil into bed shapes so basically you're either cutting the sod to simultaneously create a path and a bed so you know the way I would do this is is put stakes or strings or something to show where paths would be and then cut in the sod in a straight line with a shovel from one stake to another or on either side of the stake maybe a foot to each side of the stake making it which would generate a two-foot path uh, I'd cut that shape out and then cut a parallel line or two between the lines creating the perimeter of the path so then I have two three or four strips of sod where my path is going to be and then I would stand at one end and walking backwards cut perpendicular lines to those parallel lines creating sod blocks 
and as I make those sod blocks, I scoop them out with a shovel. And the reason I walk backwards is because you're standing on the sod instead of standing in the hole that you're going to generate. It's much easier to stand on the ground than in a hole when you're digging. At least for me, it's, it makes ergonomical sense. You can use the leverage of the tools better. You're not bending over as hard. You're not like walking around in loose dirt. So yeah, you, you walk backwards, cutting these sod blocks and flipping them in whatever direction you want the bed to be in relation to the path. So this is basically uh, an adaptation of the way that I do handmade swales. And a reason I like to do handmade swales is because it's usually uh, it, it's usually more appropriate to the scale that I've typically made swales and swale-based gardens, uh, not very big. So big enough to push a wheelbarrow through the path, to walk on a flat path. Um, but you can use that. I'll, I'll get into swales too and kind of revisit that process. But this inverted sod raised bed method is like swales, except it's not necessarily on contour. That's the difference. But the, the point is that you're, you're digging down to make a path and using the material from the path to build up a bed. In whatever orientation you want it to be so as you're walking backwards digging these sod blocks out that are all fairly uniform so that everything is tidy and layered uh, strategically so that the sod dies the, the point is you cut these sod blocks out and flip them over so the grass is facing down on top of the grass where your bed is going to be so you're killing both the grass that's that's going to be in the interior of your bed that's on the ground, you're killing that grass with the grass that you're cutting from where the path adjacent to the bed will be. So you have grass on grass, both buried under topsoil and subsoil. So that kills the grass in, you know, in the bed. Um, and that also has an advantage of having grass, which is full of nitrogen uh, in the interior you know several inches down into your bed so your as that grass dies it's going to release nitrogen that's already worked deeply into the soil uh, so it, it 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 interrupts the regular um soil profile layering which you know usually goes dead plant matter in the form of mulch uh and then compost either separate from topsoil or mixed into topsoil and then topsoil and then subsoil and then a layer of probably usually different subsoil so in uh, this process um, changes that layering a bit by putting grass and topsoil lower in the mix so when you're when you're done inverting the sod this way well, after you in invert the sod, you, you then dig down into the soil a bit more to create soil depth and to uh, soil depth on the bed and depth in the path because these paths, these sunken paths, in working like swales, they're a reservoir for water so that they can passively irrigate the beds that are, you know, in a swale directly downhill on contour from the path or in like a mandala garden or any other orientation you decide to make with this type of method you know they're at least getting somewhat irrigated they're not going to be as efficiently irrigated as something on contour by you know definition but it's going to be better than if there wasn't a sunken trench around this bed some water will be held there
right next to the bed and the roots of plants can reach into it especially after a few subsequent seasons like all the sod is dead and the roots can penetrate through the ground where the sod was now and get to the water better especially with perennials because their roots are going to be there all the time and they're going to be growing and constantly digging deeper into the soil so um that is a <laughs> that's the overview of my sod fl sod flipping raised bed gardening technique that I've seen a couple other people talk about but not really much and never heard it in depth in the way that I'm trying to explain it so I hope that is clear to you and I'm going to make uh, YouTube videos detailing that you know discreetly showing you know step by step exactly what I'm saying um, I think it's a really good way to stack many functions in raised bed gardening uh, with less soil fertility inputs zero fossil fuels no expensive or complicated tool usage just pretty systematic you know patterning techniques to make it as efficient and effective as possible so after sod blocking another another method within your gardening strategies is um you know just regular raised beds that aren't made from from flipping sod and digging down paths uh, where you just make a frame out of wood stone or concrete and then just uh, fill that with you know topsoil or loam or compost or some sort of planting medium mix within raised beds you can also incorporate strategies such as culture, which is a really good idea because it saves you on a lot of that other uh, substrate that you you need to grow plants um, saves you a lot of money in buying compost and topsoil to put a, a small layer of wood in the bottom of your your um, your raised bed that's made with wood or stone or concrete or something uh, it just saves a lot of space and has that benefit of the wood breaking down over a long period generating fertility in the long run for you so if you know I would, I would almost always recommend if people are going to make raised beds especially if they're tall this it won't work in a short raised bed like only six inches it won't work very well to put wood in there because it'll be so close to the surface you won't have much room for the roots of plants to uh, penetrate they'll hit wood too quickly so if you're going to make a raised bed with hugel culture it'd be better to make it like at least a foot you, you know i'd say two feet would be much better and some people make these super tall raised beds that are like three or four feet tall which has another benefit of being you know good for people that are older or uh, have some sort of physical impairment where they can't bend down easily and uh, i mean you could do it just because you you like the convenience of it being high too and, and deeper soil and there's and better drainage there's all kinds of benefits to having a really tall raised bed with sides and that's just an example of kind of stacking now it is stacking functions because you're, you're you know with hugel culture you're going to increase moisture retention add soil depth have long-term fertility production and um, have easier access within a raised bed it, it allows you to make a hugel culture taller by having it in a raised bed with sides and putting hugel culture in a raised bed allows you to save on materials to fill the bed so that's kind of a, a hybrid of of uh, methods within garden strategies another version of a raised bed popular 
popularized, I think, basically by permaculture is herb spirals, which, you know, if anyone's gotten into permaculture, they've surely heard of herb spirals. And it's somewhat of a cliche or joke among some permaculture circles that it's, it's not permaculture unless you have an herb spiral, which is, of course, a joke. <laughs> uh, but doesn't mean that herb spirals are a joke. They're, they are a cool method. Um, of raised bed building it basically involves uh, having a mound of substrate of, of soil compost um, mulch you know something to grow in a pile of it and you essentially just build a, you build a spiral from the bottom up and the outside in with some sort of material usually stone or cinder block or you could do it with wood any any material that you feel you know you can use your creativity to create a spiral that starts at the bottom and goes up and up to the peak so it's sort of a cone or mound shaped raised bed and the idea the advantage of having an herb spiral is that you're you're increasing um, surface area in a in a smaller amount of square feet on the flat ground because you're making a three-dimensional shape and that's also an advantage of hugel culture but it's it's kind of like taking a lot a linear raised bed and then twisting it so it, it piles up vertically and and uh, you know and that's an example of using a pattern found in nature a spiral to inform you know how and why to make a raised bed this way and it has other advantages such as it creates microclimates uh, from moist and cool and shady at the bottom where you would plant certain plants that will want those conditions such as mint or watercress and you can even dig a little hole at the bottom to make this little micro pond so like your aquatic plants can thrive at the bottom such as cress although they'd prefer the water to be running but um, there are other plants that like wet feet like mint likes it wet and is pretty tolerant of shade um, so as you move up the spiral uh, you plant things that like more drainage and, and also putting that low part on the north side if you're in the northern hemisphere keeps it in the shade so the orientation of this spiral is important as well but as you move up you can plant things that want a little more drainage um, like I don't know chives garlic chives uh, parsley dill like they don't want arid conditions but they don't want waterlogged conditions either and then you move up further on the spiral you're at the highest and driest point where you'd put your Mediterranean herbs like um, rosemary and thyme and sage and oregano um, so yeah the, the herb spiral has many benefits many interesting um, function stacking elements to it that uh make it a good method in um, in your garden strategy. So that's the techniques and strategies in raised beds. So lastly, uh, oh wait, that's the strategies and methods, sorry, from the top down. And now techniques for gardens would include things like back to Eden gardening, which is a form of sheet mulching which I, I said earlier, sheet mulching is like, it's basically layering organic matter on the ground to suppress the growth of what's already growing there and build soil and fertility for what you want to grow there. So sheet is referring usually to 
like cardboard or newspaper, but it could be just sheets of organic matter as well. And back to Eden gardening is a type of sheet mulching where you it's just based on wood chips. It's it's wood chip centric. So you you would you know either with or without cardboard. I always do this with cardboard. I I think cardboard is helpful. It's uh it's convenient. It's kind of uniform. It really helps make sure the weeds and the grass don't come up. And worms really like to uh, burrow into the the corrugated tunnels in cardboard. Um, people have other opinions about why cardboard isn't good because of the the glue or the ink that might be on it. And I don't use like colored ink cardboard because it it definitely has chemicals in that ink. But if you have plain cardboard that might have some print on it, if it's just black, it's usually like soy based ink uh, and you know the glue it may or may not be biodegradable and sometimes you just decide that it's you know okay because <laughs> you know it's better than chemical agriculture for sure and it's an abundant uh resource in the waste stream that is sort of a it's sort of a trade-off you know you might have some glue in there but you know there's all kinds of plastic and chemicals in even organic gardening like the the trays you use are plastic and they may or may not be biodegradable anyways in sheet mulching usually put cardboard down or not and then any recipe of different layers of organic matter usually uh, alternating with carbon rich and nitrogen rich sources uh, carbon rich things being wood chips in the case of back to eden gardening or straw or leaves and then um, nitrogen rich things obviously as such as a compost or manure usually you save the compost for the top because that's like the primary thing that plants want to be surrounded in with their roots and growing into but yeah manure coffee grounds um, spent grain from breweries is a good source of nitrogen so you'd layer these nitrogen and carbon things back and forth and at the top you have usually compost and another layer of mulch to keep the weeds from growing and to keep the moisture in and to have a nice uniform top layer so that, that that's that's uh, sheet mulching in a nutshell but the back to Eden method is basically just a deep layer of wood chips that uh, over time rots down um, and you you know you can you can add manure or compost into that that mix too like you can leave your wood chips for a year and you'll have semi broken down wood chips uh, a few inches down that you could plant into but it wouldn't be ideal so what a lot of people do is just rake the wood chips aside where they want to plant put down a layer of compost before they plant put the plants or the seeds in and then rake the wood chips back around them um, so that's that's an example of a technique for making gardens and I yeah and then also an, another version of of sheet mulching a different way um, most people are familiar is the Ruth Stout method which is basically just layering th you know thick layers of hay or straw on the ground um, which will break down faster than wood chips um, but it's since they're less dense it's less overall biomass less overall soil 
uh, or compost production, but you know, wood chips are energy intensive. They require chippers. Uh, it's a lot of work to create wood chips, whereas using hay or grass is much less energy intensive. And one particular Ruth Stout-esque method that I'm familiar with that uh, I really like the idea of and haven't done a whole lot myself, but I, I have made some gardens um, to experiment all of these different techniques right in a row um, on contour to compare how well they worked. I think I talked about that in another episode too, but this particular Ruth Stout-esque method that, that I like is um, by this guy, Jim Kovaleski, who uh, I've met. He He's a uh, market gardener and homesteader who has operations in Florida and down East Maine, and he travels seasonally back and forth. Uh, and in Florida, he, he grows in the winter and sells to farmers markets and restaurants. Growing in his and other people's yards, um, and he, he essentially sheet mulches there just using compost, like municipally generated and provided compost. It's a really sweet program, like the the town picks up yard waste scraps, composts them, and delivers them back, I'm pretty sure for free, which is an amazing model that should be utilized everywhere. It's just common sense. And, you know, the thing is, as permaculturists, it's up to us to voice that opinion and educate people about that potential so that it becomes a part of our culture. We're, we're here to shape culture in positive ways. So, you know, talk to your municipality about that idea and show examples of Jim Kovaleski doing it and others. And uh, that's one really great way to uh, kind of make permaculture more common and automatic. You know, people are going to pick up yard waste anyways. Uh, it, it just makes the process more efficient to get get that get that pattern in place where the, the uh, biomass is returned in an improved state to places that want to grow food. Um, other than that, though, he grows in Maine in the summer using what he calls grass-fed vegetables method. So he, he'll scythe acres of fields um, with his nice you know, European scythe that efficiently cuts grass, and he'll collect all that grass with a big tarp and his old dump truck and bring it to his garden and, and every year layer up his beds which are purely made of just layers of this grass and it, it's like Ruth Stout except I think she used hay bales which is you know tractor bales hay and it's kind of a more industrial process Jim does it all himself by hand with a scythe well obviously the, the truck is involved but you could drag it you could drag it with a tarp all the way if you wanted but um, yeah it's just a really good simple one person uh, approach to building soil from the top down just layering grass and uh, it you know it it makes a nice rich composty humus to grow plants in and it requires I think zero I don't think he waters plants once he puts them in like waters them in the greenhouse before the seedlings come in but once they're in the ground I'm, I'm pretty sure it just uh, it retains that moisture really well and uh, very few weeds come up so that's a that's a really awesome pretty you know it's labor intensive in the fact that you have to scythe but scything is really efficient once you're good at it and you have a sharp blade and you know what you're doing it's it's much less labor intensive than the next technique i i want to talk about which is double digging 
Um, so double digging is almost the opposite of no dig. Like sheet mulch and Jim Kovaleski method and stuff are all examples of no dig gardening. On the other hand, you can do double dig gardening, which most people also don't do <laughs> because it's super labor intensive. But it's it's a technique um, employed by the people doing uh, bio intensive gardening. Um, you know, popularized by John Jevons. And to their credit, they've had amazing success doing it because their system is really thoroughly integrated and there's lots of steps to it. Their strategy, it's a whole strategy because it incorporates double digging and systematic compost making and, um, you know, the way they grow seedlings, uh, the way they make potting mix. Like they have all these, all these methods intertwined together to make this really successful strategy. But um, the technique that I want to discuss in that is double digging, which basically you establish where you want a garden to be. You stake out the border or you just, you know, you, you visualize where the border is going to be. And it's usually like most garden beds are elongated. There's a, a length and a width and the length is obviously longer. So what you do is you, you dig a trench parallel to the edge of your bed the width ways so the short ways so if you had a four by eight bed you would dig a trench four feet long and the width of the shovel you're using and they have specific shovels for this they're they're a square tipped shovel that's usually about a foot long so you dig a trench with that and then you do what i did um or you know you have to remove the sod so that that might use another tool like an italian hoe it's just a super heavy hoe it's like somewhere between a hoe and a mattock um that can actually peel the sod off with a minimal amount of uh topsoil coming with it because you want to keep the topsoil there otherwise you have to figure out a way to scrape the sod off or cut the sod out in blocks and then chunk off the topsoil with a shovel which is a real pain so um Another thing you could do is lay a tarp over where you want the bed to be in the fall and then in the spring you take the tarp off and you'll have killed all the grass and you don't need to remove sod anymore. You've just incorporated the sod into the topsoil basically. That's probably the easiest way to do it. But anyways, once, once your sod is removed or incorporated into your bed, you then dig this trench, the width of the bed, and you take that soil out put it in a wheelbarrow or buckets or something to set it to the side for the moment. So then you have a foot deep, foot wide trench. And then you have a fork that's a foot wide and a foot deep. I think, yeah, they're at least a foot deep. I don't know if they're a foot wide. They they're, might not be that wide, but anyways, it, the, the, the depth is what's important. So you have, a, you have topsoil to the depth of a foot removed. So then you take this foot long fork and you jam it into the subsoil as deep as it'll go hopefully a foot because the idea is that you're trying to aerate soil to the depth of two feet so then you jam that fork in and you you wiggle it back and forth to loosen the soil in this trench down to two feet you just keep on walking down that trench and wiggling this fork as deep as you can go so then you have this you have a, a foot deep trench within another foot of subsoil in that trench loosened under it so then you you dig soil that's directly adjacent to that trench with your shovel and you put that foot of topsoil from the next trench you're digging into the first trench you made that has the loosened subsoil 
and then you and then you loosen the subsoil from that second trench and you repeat that process until you get all the way to the end of the bed so you have all these trenches that are now loosened in the subsoil down to a foot and topped with loosened uh, topsoil then you have your last trench that you dug and you can then re-add the soil from your first trench to that trench but typically you don't need to because with all the loosening of this topsoil you the, the soil has uh, increased in surface area and it's kind of made the bed raised just by introducing more air to the soil so it's less compacted so it's fluffier and the, the soil spreads and can fill that last trench and still be raised so you don't really need to use that soil and I think what bio-intensive gardeners do typically is use that topsoil to incorporate into compost piles and or incorporate into potting mix because it's, it's like a 50-50 mix of compost they've made and topsoil to uh, grow seeds in. So it's just like a clever way to use that, that soil that has been made excess by fluffing up the soil through this double digging process. So anyways, double digging is labor intensive, but if you do it with the correct ergonomics and the right tools and with practice, it's not as hard as it is without those things or as hard as it seems at first and I've tried it I like I said I tried all the methods I'm talking about here in sequence on contour on one spot to see how well they perform and in the first year the double dug bed performed um, the, the least well um, and I think it's one of those things where it's supposed to get better with time uh, as I think all these things really are uh, as things break down and as as the action of roots growing in the soil improves the structure and the porosity of the soil, things get better. But the, all the other methods I'm talking about work better initially than double digging. So I'm not going to say double digging doesn't work or don't use it. I have limited experience with it, but in year one compared to all these other methods, it was not as good. But like I said, the people who do it have great success because they do it really systematically in within the context of an entire strategy, and that's an important aspect to it, I think. So now that we've talked about all those um, garden techniques within methods, within strategies, I'm going to talk about the next level up in food production uh, in the context of home. So in homesteading, the basic goal is to provide uh, some if not all or as much of your own food as possible for yourself you know as opposed to gardening which might just be some salad greens or some tomatoes you know it's there's there's no uh, definitive amount of production necessarily uh, to do with gardening it, it can be any scale but homesteading sort of um, suggests that you're you're growing a very significant amount of your food so it usually not necessarily but often incorporates animals into the mix and um, fruit and nut trees homesteading is typically what i associate as the most common use of uh, permaculture in for people like people use permaculture to make their homesteading efforts more efficient, more productive, more effective. So um, some strategies in homesteading uh, as 
as provided by permaculture include things such as uh, successional grazing, uh, which is where you have multiple species of livestock and you have uh, fields or silvopasture situations, trees, trees in fields or woods transitioning to a grassier type of uh, understory situation and then you you bring your different species of livestock into that area to graze and or browse browsing being eating woody things grazing eating herbaceous things like grass um, you, you bring in your different animals in a particular order so that um, the food that's available to them is available at the right time in the right quality, in the right quantity, in the right type of plant is available to the particular animal at the time that you bring them in, in the order that you bring them in from one animal to another. So the uh, system of successional grazing that I'm familiar with is again from Mark Shepard on his farm in Wisconsin, New Forest Farm, in his uh, sort of agroforestry restoration agriculture type of model and obviously that is not I mean it is a homestead secondarily it is a production farm primarily but again with homesteading is often but not always a component to that situation in which there are gardens so that's another way these things are nested in a farm you might be homesteading with gardens in a garden you're not necessarily homesteading or farming see what I mean so that's how these concepts are nested within each other and applied to each other um so yeah in in mark shepherd's successional grazing pattern uh they have I, th I think they have cows and sheep and pigs and turkeys and they i think they've tried goats but basically they, they put the cows through first and within the cows they they let different ages and you know types of cows graze the first uh you know the first pickings of grass because the calves and the milking mothers need the highest quality grass because you know the, the calves need high nutrient dense food to to thrive in their developmental stages and the mother the mother cows need that need to provide milk for the babies and for the farm operation need high quality to produce milk and so the they get the first most tender green new young grass and then the older cows that aren't uh, calving anymore get the next pick because they they don't need the higher quality food at this point in their life and after the cows go through I'm pretty sure the sheep come in next who uh, will eat the less favorable species within the pasture like the cows, the young cows, and then the other cows, like they want to eat like clover and more tender, tasty, nutrient-rich grass species. But the sheep will come eat the drier, stubbly grass and the more bitter, sort of weedy grasses and, and things like that. And then I think pigs would come after that, who are even less picky than sheep. And then turkeys would come after pigs... Um, 
I'm I'm not sure if this is the exact right order of animals, but the idea is that it you you have the you have the appropriate food for the appropriate animal at the appropriate time that lines up with the growth patterns of the pasture itself. So you 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 pulse these animals through in a timing such that the pasture has time to um recover from the the grazing from one animal to another and in the process of the animals being there the the stomping around with their hooves is sort of aerating the grass even though they're kind of compacting at the same time because they're heavy animals but there's still an aeration component to it as well as obviously dropping manure and urine all over it so they're they're feeding the grass as they feed on the grass as well so this this type of uh, strategy requires um, good timing and good knowledge of how the pasture works as a sort of ecosystem in and of itself and in relationship to the livestock. Another component of how and why this successional grazing pattern works is that the different animals will also clean up the waste from the animals prior to them. So like uh, chickens or turkeys will come in after the pigs or the sheep and they will, they will scratch through and flip over the, the, uh, you know, the, the poop piles, (laughs) the cow patties or whatever to get the bugs in them and to eat parasites that have made it through the body of the animal. So they're, they're, they're keeping disease and pest and parasite pressure down by putting the animals in the correct order so that they clean up after each other in these ways. Um, so yeah, successional grazing is a really good, you know, kind of complex in, in the functions of it, but not that complex in the application of it. It just needs correct timing, a good understanding of the animals and the plants involved and adequate infrastructure such as good fencing and access with vehicles and uh, the ability to move the animals around efficiently. Um, An example of an efficient way to move around animals in a system like this or a similar system would be using a chicken tractor. So a chicken tractor can be a strategy if the focus of the homestead or the operation is eggs and chicken meat and uh, using the chickens to generate fertile ground. So a chicken tractor is basically a box or a house, cage house for chickens that kind of puts them pretty closely together and puts them on a patch of ground for a designated amount of time in which they will scratch the ground and eat the seeds and eat the grass and eat the bugs and eat the weeds and basically kill what's on the surface of the ground while heavily fertilizing it with all their excrement and at the point at which that is done you then scoot them forward to just beyond where they just were to do that on the next patch of ground and you move them in this like linear progression across the place you're trying to cultivate um that so then later you can plant crops in there or if the goal is to just pasture raise the chickens and not create growing space for plants you move them quicker before they annihilate the grass you just let them stay on there long enough just to get as much food as they need and to fertilize the grass and then you move them so it depends on the goal if you want it to be maintaining pasture for continual successional grazing or to prepare the ground for uh 
turning into a crop situation. Um, so that's chicken tractors, which, yeah, like I said, depending on the context and the goal, can either be a strategy or a method. Um, so some other homestead strategies include things like polycultures, uh, another term used in permaculture a lot, which basically just means uh, many plants, polys, many cultures is cultivation. So it's groups of plants that um, either get along well enough together so as to not compete with each other or uh, more ideally actually benefit each other. So interplanting is another term for a polyculture, which usually involves two, maybe three plants. Polycultures can be more complex than that, including more species, at which point you might want to consider it a guild. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, you know, definitively how you would differentiate a polyculture from a guild. They're both assemblages of plant species that, like I said, either get along well enough to not interfere with each other or better yet uh, actively improve the conditions for each other. So, uh, you know, a good example of a... Well, let's start from start from small, low complexity to high complexity. So, uh, a low complexity interplanting would be like the three sisters of um, Native American tradition of corn, beans, and squash. That's a three plant interplanting or polyculture. And uh, so, in that situation, um, you plant corn first. You let it get to a certain height, maybe a foot. Or maybe a little less and then you plant beans and with enough time for the beans to start growing up the corn stalk but not so fast not so soon after you plant corn that it like overwhelms the corn because beans grow faster than corn and they'll they can smother and rip down the corn you know thus defeating the, the purpose um the purpose is that the beans grow up the corn stalk so it's, it's providing a living trellis for the bean and the bean being a legume fixes nitrogen for the corn, which is a heavy feeder, meaning it needs uh, an abundance of nitrogen to produce the seed head, which is the corn cob that we like to enjoy. And after you've got your corn growing and your bean growing up your corn stalk, you'd plant squash. And the goal of the squash is to provide shade on the ground to keep weeds down and to uh, increase uh, increase moisture retention in the soil and just, you know, take up space that would otherwise be colonized by weeds and to produce the the crop of squash. Um, so that's, that's a traditional and still commonly used polyculture or guild and interplanting. These, these terms are somewhat interchangeable. I think the difference is just the amount of complexity between them. So, you know, you might want to call that a polyculture because it's more than interplanting. Interplanting might only be two things like lettuce and radish or something because radish grows faster than lettuce. So while the lettuce is, is growing, the radish produces a crop before the lettuce is ready, but they don't compete with each other because they have different root structures, different rates of growth, but they both grow in the same conditions of cool, you know, cool season crops. So that's a good example of just a simple interplanting. Um, and then all the way up to the higher complexity of a guild, which would be like the classic permaculture food forest fruit tree guild of having like an apple tree at the center of the guild being the, the primary 
uh, canopy in the seven or so uh, layers of a food forest. Yeah, it might actually, you know, if you're going full seven layers, you might actually put a nut tree at the, the center of the guild that has an apple tree in a secondary canopy. So from the, from, from the top down, you'd maybe have like a, uh, a chestnut or, a, or an oak tree as a primary crop producing like the staple, uh, the primary plant, the center of the guild pr producing the staple crop of nuts because nuts have, uh, you know, a balanced macronutrient ratio of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. So it's like the most important thing is what keeps you alive. And it's the longest lived, big biggest plant in the guild. So then the next layer down in the canopy, you'd have something like an apple tree, which, you know, uh, produces apples which have many uses uh, nutritionally and medicinally and um, will also live a very long time they're fairly large uh, they're just you know a very good good plant to grow in this this region specifically in Maine there's uh, hundreds of apple varieties in Maine um, so then beneath that you'd have your third canopy layer which would be a, a shrub layer typically a large shrub not as big as an apple tree maybe maybe like a hazelnut or uh you know oh, actually before the shrub layer you might have the vining layer you might have vines grape vines growing up your apple trees or up the nut trees and then in the shrub layer like juneberry or blueberry um so it's you know shorter than the apple tree it can exist in a, a moderate amount of shade from the apple tree but kind of further away from the nut tree on the south side so it still gets enough sun to uh, bear fruit um, under that you might have a cane fruit layer like raspberries or blackberries that you know need a little more sun they're more like a, an edge species that live on the edge of a forest in a field it's exactly where raspberries and blackberries want to be uh, beneath that, further out from the oak tree or the nut tree from that, you might have some herbaceous perennials uh, like horseradish or uh, perennial greens um, like sea kale or something um, or comfrey, you know, which is a, a, a multi-use beneficial plant for pollinating and uh, new, uh, mineral accumulating um, dynamic accumulator is the term people use it also is a pollinator it is a compost uh, boosting plant when you cut the leaves you can use as mulch around your trees and shrubs um, so that's your perennial herbaceous layer and you might have smaller perennial flowering herbaceous plants like daffodils which are pest deterrents or they would deter deer and maybe digging animals and lower down still some more perennial herbs like garlic chives which do the same thing they they have a strong scent so they deter pests and they're edible and they're perennial and they spread beneath that still you might have some annuals you could you could sprinkle easily self-sowing annual vegetables and herbs like dill which also is an umbiliferous plant that ha uh, provides habitat for um, parasitic wasps that um you know keep your um your your pest insect population down and they self-seed easily and uh you know they just provide 
beauty and edibility and fragrance to the whole guild. Uh, some some self sewing, you know, uh, cilantro is another good one. They self sew really easily. They're fragrant. They're edible. They they take up space where weeds would otherwise be. Other you know other easily self seeding annuals would be like mescaline mix or arugula. Just let those go to seed, and then they'll be like an edible, basically grass slightly bigger than grass size ground cover. Um, or you can even let kale go to seed and have little baby kales coming up everywhere. And then beneath that, yet yeah, still maybe you could have strawberries as a ground cover, strawberries and or clover, and they both, you know, spread and provide either, well, they're both edible. You need strawberries and the flowers of clover. Clover's a nitrogen fixer, pollinator. So then you're all, that's, you're all the way down to your ground cover, and then you could have your wood chips, all throughout the ground that are inoculated with strafaria so you've got the uh the myco layer subsoil layer um going on which helps communicate between the the roots of all these plants um shuttling minerals and uh sugars via um photosynthesis from the plants back and forth to the mycelium of the mushrooms and and moisture to plants and just communicating between plants about diseases in the soil or pests, parasites. They, the, the mycelium does so many things underground that help the health of all the plants in your guild. So you have a mix of perennial and annual ground covers and uh, wood chips inoculated with mushrooms and in that layer so that that might have been more than seven layers i don't know seven or eight layers to that kind of food forest type guild of plants so that that's a guild so it's much more complex than a a few plant polyculture and obviously way more complex than just a simple intercropping system so there's that strategy uh, and a strategy that incorporates lots of strategies I guess you'd call it a meta strategy or uh, an overarching strategy would be something called a old field mosaic which is where you have an your property would have multiple um, ecosystems like like a field and a forest and a cultivated cropping system all happening in their appropriate place in relation to each other in space and time. And, and you're basically directing succession at multiple stages uh, and, and you know, altering them as needed to, to provide multiple yields for you. So that's like a, a larger system of strategy. So methods within these homestead strategies would be like using electric fences for your paddocks for your successional grazing system and using your chicken tractor uh, strategy to incorporate designed disturbance patterns like I said before you know letting your chicken tractor stay in one spot to disturb the soil from its like stable pasture setting to a uh, a loose very rich soil for like heavy feeding crops that's a design disturbance and that's a method within the strategy 
and then some techniques that would be applied to the methods within these strategies in the homestead context would be uh, things like scything. You know, you use your scythe to cut down grass around the edge of your electric fence because if the grass is all tangled up in the electric fence, it'll short it out and your animals can get out. So you might have to do regular scything to maintain that uh, particular method. And then you can use that you can use that grass that you've scythed as animal feed or uh, mulch or a compost component. Um, cover cropping is another technique used uh, in in garden systems as opposed to tilling or just to improve soil fertility. You you know spread whatever desired cover crop you want to hold the soil that might have been you know initially disturbed to to break up the soil and initiate uh, a gardening activity. That's an example of design disturbance as well. And then deep litter mulching is another technique you could apply to livestock raising where you have animals that either when they're not in their successional, when, when they're not out on pasture as a part of their successional grazing pattern, they're living in their designated area like a chicken coop or a chicken yard you would deep litter mulch the yard or the coop to absorb all the manure and and create a more balanced carbon nitrogen ratio and keep the smell and the ammonia production down so then when you clean out the pen or the coop you have a better material to uh, compost and then integrate back into the garden so those are some techniques so lastly um, we come to farm strategies methods and techniques so farming being like obviously the level beyond uh, homesteading or which could encapsulate homesteading and gardening so some some farming strategies uh, within the purview of permaculture would include things like no-till farming obviously organic farming horse-powered farming bio-intensive which I already mentioned biodynamic market gardening farming co-ops, urban farming. So in no-till, no-till obviously is is another way of saying no-dig or a version of sheet mulching, but in farming, the, the particular term no-till is usually applied on a larger scale and incorporates uh, specific special tractor uh, implements called a, a, a like a crimping, a crimping system um, where where the implement cuts the cover crop or the previous remnants of the last crop cuts it to the ground and crimp uh, roller crimper that's it and so it cuts it and then it uh, lays it flat to create a mat to create the sheet within you know of sheet mulching of mulch and then behind that that that's in the front of the tractor and in behind it there's uh, the other attachment parts the mulch, the debris from the cover crop or the last crop, it parts it to expose the soil just slightly enough to drop seeds into a little trough that's dug and then rolled back over to cover the seeds. So it's this really nicely integrated four component um, pattern that keeps the organic matter always on the field, never allowing soil to be exposed 
and planting right through it to you know keep the germination rate high and to make constant coverage uh, work in a cropping system so that's that's like a no-till approach and obviously organic has been around a very long time and it just means not using uh, chemical components using organic meaning once living components to maintain fertility and soil structure and all that which is a a large strategy which incorporates lots of these it's, it's like another meta strategy like an old field mosaic so it, it incorporates all kinds of other strategies and methods and techniques I don't think I have to explain too in depth what organic farming is but another smaller strategy within farming could be like horse powered to uh, you know not rely on fossil fuels and expensive um, complicated machines like tractors you know, it's just what people have been doing for quite a long time. You use an, a beast of burden to pull a plow or your somewhat more simple tractor implements to cultivate the ground. And you can also use them for logging. And uh, it's, you know, related to the idea of a successional grazing. It's just an, another way to use a, an animal's kind of innate... Um, characteristics to help with the work on a farm you know horses are strong it's not necessarily their nature to want to pull stuff but you know they've been domesticated so long and trained and bred to do that kind of thing at this point that is arguably part of their nature it's not as um, natural as like letting pigs root around to uh, find food to like design disturbance into your system, um, but it's it's another strategy that you can use. Um, like I already went over biointensive. That's a that can be used on they in biointensive. They they like to call their system a micro farming thing. I mean, I guess you could have large scale farms doing biointensive. It would just be like huge human labor input. But you know, given the high yields gotten from biointensive farming you you know it might make sense economically and practically to have lots of employees doing biointensive hand work to produce huge amounts of crops and small amounts of land that's that's the whole point of biointensive uh it's getting lots of crops out of small square footage so it's typically used in gardening and homesteading and not so much big scale farming but it is a farming you know technically method uh, and then biodynamic is a another another system that is based a lot on like a holistic cosmological uh, perspective of looking at growing things and ecosystems and human relations and uh, cosmic energies and celestial bodies and how they all interact in a you know universal scale. So like planets and stars and the moon have rhythms and energies that influence uh, the rhythms and energies of the planet and people and animals and plants. And biodynamics is, a, is an attempt to harmonize those patterns with human behavior patterns and patterns on the farm to make everything, you know, harmonize and holistically integrated to function optimally um, and naturally. So that's, that's another really big strategy that's got all kinds of... Uh, techniques and methods within it um 
it's it's a dense topic so it might be worth talking about in a different subject maybe uh, you know the permaculture and metaphysics or permaculture and spirituality uh, it, it delves into all those realms and and I, I in future episodes I'm gonna start having whole topics of permaculture and to like break down or get deep into related topics singularly um, that that are related to permaculture and that might be one of them so then within farm strategies too there's the market gardening which is you know usually incorporates biointensive elements but is not necessarily you know trademarked as a biointensive micro farming endeavor but you know it includes either you know in market gardening there's kind of it's either something like double digging or no digging it's funny it can go both ways but the idea is that you're densely planting high value crops in small areas with minimal waste and maximal efficiency essentially and market gardens um have a lot to do with urban farming because typically of low space and you want to produce high value in low space with high efficiency that's essentially what market gardening is about um also, you can have farm co-ops, which is also what Mark Shepard and um, New Forest Farm is about. They're part of um, Organic Valley Farming Co-op. So co-ops are another big strategy to break down, and I think that's also a topic for another another podcast, Permaculture and Co-ops or Permaculture and Alternative Economies, Permaculture and, um, you know social social engineering i guess so, so alternative societal systems something like that um but co-ops are basically just um intentional voluntary uh pooling of resources and commitments and abilities and infrastructure and products to to you know, lessen the cost of business and increase the profits while being democratic or communal in structure of the personnel and, and people are owner operators. So like you're not, it's not like an employer employee situation. It's more like a group owned equitably distributed power and influence structure than a typical business. So that's, that's a co-op. That's a strategy in farming. Some some methods within the farming world, uh, according to permaculture or using permaculture ideas, uh, in, uh, once again include sheet mulch. Sheet mulch kind of just is ubiquitous in its applicability to um, farming, gardening, and homesteading, and can be strategies, methods, and techniques. It's kind of like the uh, the everything. It, it, it transcends these categories in a way because it's just so uh, so useful. Um, but some other farm strategies include using greenhouses extensively to um, extend seasons or create microclimates or uh, simulate different growing zones to grow higher value or exotic crops. And some other strategies particularly to market gardening would be like relying on a bcs as your you know main field cultivation bed preparation harvesting post harvest like just doing all of the the hard work or a lot of the hard work you obviously there's a lot of hand work still but a bcs 
is central to the strategy. Another larger scale and more complex farming strategy, which is a precursor to permaculture and an inspiring system to permaculture, is keyline design created by P.A. Yeomans in Australia, I think in the 1940s. And um, the goal of keyline was, the or the motto was, to provide water to every farm in Australia. And it was especially pertinent to hilly and dry areas um, because, you know, they had had a legacy of overgrazing and poor water management and increased drought and erosion. Um, so keyline was developed to try to utilize what water does exist or does um, collect on a landscape and to be able to distribute it more evenly across the landscape essentially by finding areas high in the landscape that collect water and and that being called a key point and then from the key point making measuring contour or slightly off contour downhill in one or both directions from the key point to make this line that when when established you can you can drag this implement called the the yeoman's plow or something like a chisel plow or a, a hook basically that just rips a hole in the ground and allows water to percolate down to a foot of about a de- uh, a depth of about one foot and um, you would do this on the key line and parallel to the key line up and down the slope so you have these parallel lines that are based on one primary contour line which is centered on the key point and there can be several key points depending on the land form and um, where the water sits and where you're trying to get it to and where it eventually drains to so that is that is a, a good farming strategy incorporating permaculture principles or you know from which permaculture uh, was inspired and is still you know relevant and applicable today and it also utilizes dams and swales and ponds in this system too and, and has been adapted to do you know be be more focused with swales ex- for example as with Mark Shepard's uh, farm New Forest Farm again they use they they do swales and ponds and dams and key line ripping all in the same system so there's there's a redundancy in water capture and several methods with which to uh concentrate and distribute water more evenly across the landscape so some methods within that overall strategy in key line design are the steps that i kind of just basically outlined like establishing a key point and a key line and using the plow and building the dams and the ponds those are all methods within the strategy of uh key line and some of the techniques that you would then employ within that method and strategy, those methods and strategy would be using some rotational grazing and pulsed irrigation by letting the water out from the dams and ponds to uh, be carried by swales to other areas, other paddocks, other pastures, other uh, cultivated areas to kind of flood irrigate, making transition zones and switchbacks and areas for like tractors and implements to turn around efficiently and spacing things according to the width of the machinery so that there are even amounts of passes between areas that are growing things 
so just sizing either sizing the landscape to the equipment or vice versa whichever one makes most sense depending on slope and the conditions and budget and all kinds of other factors so that is a bunch of things within farming um, broken down into the layers of strategies methods and techniques that employ you know that that use strategies methods and techniques common in permaculture uh, another aspect to the key line system is the scale of permanence which has a few iterations now since keyline was invented the original the original um, list of on the scale of permanence which is a way of looking at how to approach your landscape or project in terms of things that are more permanent or harder to change you look at those things first and then as you go down the list the things that you have to think about are less permanent and easy to change so the original key line scale of permanence is first you look at climate and then you look at land shape and then water supply and then you know where and how to make roads uh, where to plant what kinds of trees uh, where to site permanent buildings how you'll subdivide areas with fences and how you're going to manage your soils then there's a sort of reiteration of the key line scale developed by a group called VEG, which stands for Very Edible Gardens, also from Australia, that uh, looks at first climate and then land shape, water, access, which kind of differentiates or expands upon the idea of uh, farm roads to be, you know, a, a bigger scope of access in general, um, trees buildings which is not necessarily permanent buildings according to their wording just buildings so they could be modular or mobile or impermanent subdivisions like fencing again um soils they 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 delineate as topsoil soils more because i guess that's you know easier to change than the subsoil T turning subsoil into topsoil is harder than just creating topsoil but it's a longer term improvement and that's what Again, New Forest, you know, claims happens on their land with their their integrated approach to key line design with swales and um, uh, subsoil ripping. They, you know, they're turning their subsoil into topsoil as opposed to creating it from the top down like no dig and other methods do. Uh, and then the last two um, things on the veg scale of permanence are crops and animals so they just kind of get down to like once you've got the soil how you want it you know what are you going to do with it you're going to grow crops and raise animals or both and then lastly uh another iteration of the scale of permanence is by the regrarians platform and that goes climate geography which uh climate uh, comma geography as opposed to landscape because it's a it's a more uh, inclusive a larger scope of the situation on the land as opposed to just the shape it's you know including the parent rock material and uh, other factors of geography uh, but then water access and instead of just trees they say forestry which is also just a bigger view of trees it's uh, the whole forest ecosystem and a sustainable forestry management plan just a little broader scope um, and then buildings fences soils 
And then instead of crops and animals, at the end they have economy and energy. So I guess crops and animals would fit into their soil part, and the economy and energy is just a you know other very important factors to consider that aren't on the other scales of permanence. So that's just yeah another great. I guess it's not. It's kind of a strategy, but it's more of like a framework. It's 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 a bigger. It's a bigger system than a strategy, really. It's like it's 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 something within which to create strategies. It's how it seems to me. It's a very large system of thinking and observing and considering uh, all the factors in your project. So that's uh, that's basically many examples of um, strategies, methods, and techniques of permaculture within the contexts of gardening, homesteading, and farming. And there are a few more things I haven't touched on much that are actually very uh, prominent and popular in in the permaculture lexicon that I want to briefly go over now, and that would be uh, swales, culture, and mandala gardens, and terraces. Um, So firstly, swales, as I have said a little bit about before, are they're basically a ditch and berm on contour, a ditch being a depression in the ground along linear, you know, uh, just cut out of the soil that's in a sort of U shape. Um, and the berm is the inverse of that. It's the soil that's been dug out, mounded on the downhill side of the ditch into a, you know, a mound, uh, I guess an N, lowercase n-shaped uh form of soil and the goal of a swale and, and it's on contour which means it's level across the landscape and you can find level with an a-frame or a water level or a uh, laser level and some other tools but basically once you d- once you find level with one of those tools you you dig a, a uniform sized as in the depth and the width trench by hand or with machines and you deposit that soil immediately downhill so when water comes down the slope it goes into that trench and spreads evenly across the slope in that depression and then soaks into the subsoil and the berm and kind of rehydrates the landscape and eventually over time about seven years is what's usually said it it start it recharges the groundwater and springs will begin to emerge so you'll have like an abundance of water in the subsoil to the the point which water will start popping back out of the soil. So it's really good for just rehydrating the land. And integral to swales is planting trees to stabilize that loose soil and to hold the, you know, the increasingly uh, moist soil so it doesn't like actually cause erosion because they're essentially an erosion control method uh, erosion being, you know, water moving downslope too fast, carrying away soil. So the idea is to not let the water fly downhill, spread it out, increase soil fertility and moisture retention, and eliminate or reduce significantly erosion events. But if your if your land is too saturated and isn't stable with like um, deep drilling roots and uh, covered soil, you might actually create a more of a soil erosion problem. So 
yeah, that's the that's the basic idea of swales, and um, they're appropriate on um, relatively flat land up to a certain steepness, uh, and you don't want to put them on very steep land because they can cause you know severe erosion events. So, um, yeah, there's I think it's pretty variable about the conditions of the pitch and the soil type. And what you're going to do there, that determines whether a swale is appropriate or not. So every every site will have its own set of conditions that will determine whether a swale is appropriate. And if it's not, a terrace will become appropriate at a certain steepness and stability of soil. And a terrace is essentially where you, um, you create a flat surface on a slope by digging out and building up on that flat surface with stones or timbers or something to then hold back the soil from the slope you've just cut into. Or alternatively, you just build up from the get-go. You know, that's with, with stones and digging first, it's a more permanent, you know, kind of engineered, strong, long-lasting terrace. So a smaller, less permanent, quicker, cheap, you know, um, type of terrace would be to lay things on contour and stabilize the downhill side with posts or stakes or something and then just pile um, organic matter or soil on the uphill side and try to you know get roots in there again of some sort of plants to hold things in place that's so a quick easy small scale type of terrace um, and terraces are really good for steep areas and they can be really beautiful and enhance the aesthetics of a site and they create microclimates by um, you know, absorbing heat energy from the sun and creating habitat for uh, reptiles and amphibians and insects and small mammals and um, birds. And um, they just make otherwise less useful or less accessible land more useful and accessible. So hugel culture, which I've touched on too, again, is essentially putting woody material and other organic matter in a trench in the ground typically you can put them right on top of the ground as well but when you do that you need a sufficient amount of soil and or compost and or mulch to pile on top of your woody material so uh, that you have you know sufficient depth to plant things into um, which if you're making a big culture mound and you don't dig you're going to have to import an immense amount of soil and compost to cover everything thoroughly and not let the soil just like drip through into the interior. Um, so I, I, I always dig and put my, you know, woody material in the trench of culture, usually digging down a foot and a half, maybe two feet sometimes. Uh, I always do them by hand so they don't get that big, but, um, you can put a lot of woody material in a hand dug culture mound and the way I dig it is similar to the way I dig hand-dug swales and uh, inverted sod gardens. As I talked about earlier, you know, cutting sod blocks in parallel lines along the uh, perimeter of the shape of the bed. And in a hula culture, since you're, you're dealing with so much material, you have to pile those sod blocks far enough away from your hole, like as far as you can reach with a shovel, because you're going to dig soil that too, and you're going to have alternating piles of sod and soil surrounding your trench and then you need to get into the trench with all your woody material so you still need at least a couple entrances between all those piles so you really need to like 
give yourself a lot of space when you're doing a hugel culture that way. Um, but after you've dug the trench, you bring in what I usually do is bring in if I have brushy, uh, springy, fresh material, I put that in first because it has a tendency to like uh, spring and pop out and create holes in the in the bed into which rodents and things animals can get into and then eat at the roots of your plants and cause problems and the soil will all drain into there and not be on the surface anymore so if you have brush I usually put it in first and then all your biggest least rotten wood goes on next because it's further down and has a longer time to decompose and it holds the brush down from popping out and then after you get all those big fresh logs in, if you have them, then you have then you slowly work your way up towards smaller and more rotten wood as it gets closer to the surface where you're going to plant. So as things break down, the things that are already the most broken down and the smallest are closer to where the roots are. So as the roots grow down, they're growing into increasingly, or they're, they're in things that are further on their way to soil as they go down, or... <laughs> It takes time for the roots to dig down, so the things that are furthest from soil have more time to turn more into soil. See what I mean? And um, you know, I've I've made hugel culture beds for about thirteen years now, and continue to make improvements upon how I do them. Because my first ones, you know, were I didn't know these things. I just kind of put wood however I wanted in a hole and started throwing the soil back on and you know after observing I saw all these problems I mentioned like holes happening and animals getting in and just looking untidy and just not working that well for quite a while but you know after many years lots of the wood has rotted and you know the shape has sort of just homogenized into you know more looking like a bed and then they work fine but it's really ideal to make them neat and strategic in where you put what materials in what order and to make it all tight and th I like to think of it as a membrane like a membrane of this material a membrane of another material so you have these distinct layers and even better if you have enough soil generated by the hole you can actually you top dress every layer with soil so there's a minimal gaps for things to like slide through and mix the layers too much I mean they will get mixed over time as things rot but you don't want that to happen immediately. You want things. You want your top layer to be thick and smooth and homogeneous in the sense that it's soil and compost, so your plants aren't like struggling with trying to grow into stumps. You know what I mean? So to do that, to get excess soil, what I often do is after after I've got my wood layers on, I'll you know and and throwing some soil from the hole in between the layers of wood and uh and then i've i start putting the sod back on inverted so you're you're i'm i'm starting from the bottom up i go around in circles with the sod grass down building up like a wall of sod on all my layers of wood and i'll have more space than i can cover with the sod because again i'm increasing the surface area of the bed by making it tall so I will never have enough sod to cover the whole surface of the bed so the next thing I would do to generate more sod and soil is dig a trench around the hugel bed which will also serve as a sort of moat to be a reservoir for water surface water to collect into and then keep the whole hugel culture moist 
from the perimeter. So that way I have enough sod to then cover the whole surface of the wood and extra soil to mound on top of the bed because I use the soil from the trench in between the layers of wood. And then, <laughs> and then you can further hoogalify your path by putting, putting more wood in that path so that you can save on the wood chips that you would then put in the path to bring it back up to level with the ground because you don't want to walk in a trench around a bed that's already tall because it make the bed so tall and you'll be standing in mud. So you want to fill that trench around the bed with at least wood chips but if you want to save on wood chips you can hoogle your path and that's a thing I've done with my raised bed slightly off contour swale-esque uh, inverted sod raised beds for my initial garden at my homestead I would dig the trenches close to contour I, I chose to do them not on contour exactly because they were already on a sort of raised plateau where there had been a garden in the past so I just wanted to keep the same shape that was already formed there so they're slightly off contour and I've seen how the water going you know in those off contour trenches has made the plants on the downhill side grow much better so it's just a testament to how well putting things on contour actually works but I was willing to sacrifice that to see how that worked and just maintain basically the aesthetics of the site that I was doing it on. Um, but to, to save on wood chips and filling all these deep trenches, there's like 10 trenches, about 30 feet long, so it was going to take 10 yards or more of wood chips. I, I filled all the trenches with um, dead wood from a previous hugel culture job where I had extra wood left over so I used that wood filled in all the trenches to about 90% full and then top dressed it with wood chips to level up the path so I saved 90% of the wood chips that I would have normally used and those paths will stay solid for a long time but as the years go by they the wood will break down and the wood chips will and then I will have you know layers of on the top more done compost and as it goes down less done compost but I can then mine my hugel paths to um, put compost on the beds and in the meantime I'm going to inoculate the paths with uh, Kingstropharia mushrooms by putting another layer of cardboard down on the wood chips I have putting the spring sprinkling the Stropharia spawn on those wood chips and soaking them in and then putting another layer of wood chips so that gives a place and, and a food source for the mycelium to grow and if the garden is rich and abundant enough there will be a you know a mass of plants casting enough shade to let the stropharia live and since they're living at the top of trenches where water is going they have plenty of access to water so that's a kind of hybridized multi multi-technique approach to my homestead garden and lastly Mandala Gardens is the last, um, the last technique. I mean, it can, it can be a strategy or a method or a technique, like I said, depending on the scale and scope and goals of your project, but I'll just call it a feature uh, just to make it a broad blanket statement for it. Mandala Gardens it, uh, employ, I mean, you can use a lot of these other strategies um, or methods or techniques for a mandala garden such as no-till, sheet mulch, Ruth Stout, Jim Kovaleski, grass-fed vegetables, chicken tractors like you there one-time till and shovel in shape like you can you you know you can make you can make a uh, uh, double dig 
mandala gardens. But essentially, the idea of a mandala garden is that it's, as the name suggests, it's it resembles a mandala like a um, usually symmetrical, usually round, but not necessarily um, kind of aesthetically pleasing uh, configuration of beds and paths. Most typically. Uh, utilizing the keyhole design. It's a design within Mandala Garden idea, which is basically a circle with a path in and then a circle of path. So you, you say you'd have a circle of soil, you dig a path into the center of it and then make a circular area in the center in which to like stand or kneel and access the interior of this circular bed. So a lot of mandala gardens are series of keyholes in some sort of configuration. If they're in a circle, it makes a sort of like flower looking mandala garden. So then you can combine multiple sets of keyholes making flower looking configurations into a multi-flower looking mandala garden. But that's a real basic kind of standard way to do it. And I I really enjoy getting creative with other geometry and specifically sacred geometry and specifically the seed of life kind of image that I talked about. That's my my business logo and, and muse in permaculture in a lot of ways, using that design to make mandala gardens. And then other ideas like symbolically taking ideas like the sun or the moon or, you know, triangles with keyholes in them so they look like little 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 slices of Swiss cheese, you know, you can just think of shapes and designs and themes in nature, uh, like spirals or the sun or um, waves, you know, you can use those, those pattern ideas to help create a mandala concept and then use all one of these other bed making approaches to form your mandala. So they work best on quite flat land because they will generally not be on contour or parts of them will be and parts of them won't. So there will be uneven water distribution, especially if they're on a slopey spot. But if they're on a really flat spot and it's like in an aesthetically important spot and you want to draw attention and have really nice, you know, uh, feng shui or, or... Uh, space relation feelings when you're in there. Mandala gardens are really good for being in. They, they just like a, it's like a, a labyrinth or a maze or a meditation kind of garden, but you can make it functional and uh, you can incorporate other symbolic themes into that, such as like a medicine wheel garden. I made a medicine wheel mandala garden in Asheville, as well as a sort of prototypical version of my seat of life design mandala garden. So those are some of the most popular and some of my favorite permaculture bed building method techniques and designs within all those other larger and more varied strategies, methods, and techniques according to gardening, homesteading, and farming within permaculture. So I hope all that information was useful and interesting and fun and gives you a lot of good ideas and inspiration uh, about what you can do in your garden, on your landscape, in your permaculture endeavors. Uh, so thanks for listening. And uh, I, I guess I'll take this opportunity to um, share with you all that 
I, I, I think I've mentioned it, but I have a YouTube channel that's seed of life permaculture. And, um, if you haven't, if you've been listening to these podcasts, you might've noticed that, um, there's the opportunity to donate to them. And that would be awesome if people wanted to, I think one person has my, my cousin Finn has donated a dollar. So he's, he started that process. So thanks Finn for doing that. And uh, anyone feel free to donate anything you feel like. And, um, I plan on, uh, getting some kind of merchandise going uh i have you know interesting designs my my uh dirt goat logo uh you know i might put that on a t-shirt and my seat of life design might go on a t-shirt or hat something like that um so those things hopefully will be available in the future and you know all the original music i'm putting on these episodes i want to make available to listen to on some sort of platform i have to keep learning the computer stuff to figure out these things but look out in the future for that kind of stuff and um looking forward to the next episode all right thanks everybody take care Thank you.